Hello, this is Raphael, and welcome to Ask Me Anything for today, Friday the 4th of December, 2020. Okay, uh, Bridget Jones sends in a couple of questions. First one is about Sherman's disease. She says, hi Raph, my husband has been given a medical diagnosis of thoracic back pain and Sherman's disease. He has had thoracic back pain since the early 2000s due to occupational requirements of carrying heavy loads on his back and has been receiving physiotherapy since 2003. Sherman's disease was not diagnosed until thoracic x-rays in 2012 and in 2015 showed Sherman's disease changes the lower thoracic vertebrae with mild thoracic scoliosis, convex to the right, and mild thoracic lumbar scoliosis, convex to the left. Due to ongoing pain, he had an MRI in 2019, which showed mid to lower thoracic anterior end plate changes of Sherman's disease, T5 to T6 focal right posterolateral disc protrusion, and T7 to T8 focally thickened posterior longitudinal ligament. To top it all off, he also has cervical radiculopathy. Apologies if I provide too much information. However, my husband still receives bouts of mid-thoracic back pain. I tried to research Sherman's disease and wanted to know if this was affecting it and how I could possibly reduce this effect if possible, or possible to slow or stop to changes that seem to be occurring in it. I thought if I could understand the problem a little better, I may be able to assist in some way. Any suggestions or advice or advice you can provide would be greatly appreciated. Um, okay, Bridget. Well, so Sherman's disease, also called Sherman's kyphosis, uh, was first described by a fellow called Sherman. Uh, and it's known as a rigid kyphosis. So it's actually a structural uh, change in the shape of the thoracic vertebrae um, in the form of wedging. So uh, it generally onsets in adolescence while the, uh, while the spine is still growing and the, the back part of the vertebral body grows more quickly than the front part. Um, so the front of the vertebrae are um, shorter than the back part and so the vertebrae are kind of wedge-shaped. You know, they're, they're shorter at the front and taller at the back and so thus um, it is a structural kyphosis um, or you know increased forward curvature of the um, you know, thoracic spine the mid the mid and upper back uh, now it's it 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 is basically what is called idiopathic which means we really don't know what causes it um, there have been various theories proposed, but no one's really uh, been able to provide any particular evidence for any of them. So it's classified uh, as idiopathic at present. Um, it is generally associated with pain in about 50% of adolescents, uh, but that reduces in adulthood. So only about 25% of adults with Sherman's disease have it. Um, uh, about double as many men have it as women, uh, and as in, as far as treatments go, um, it, we have very poor literature. Uh, the reason is because we don't really understand the natural history, so we don't really understand what happens to um, you know if left untreated. So, for instance, when we when we brace people. Um, you know, so we give them a brace to wear, you know, every day for a couple of years or whatever in adolescence. 
uh, or later in life, you know, we find some, re- you know, some reduction or not in their curve, but we don't know if we didn't apply the brace, would that have been more or less or about the same? So uh, it's it's very hard to quantify. And because back pain itself is such a complex, multifactorial and poorly understood phenomena, it's really hard to tease out, you know, what, if anything, the contribution of Sherman's disease is to uh, thoracic back pain. So... In terms of if the you know if if the pain is you know really disabling, um, well I I guess I wouldn't even go that far. I would say if the if the curve is progressing, as in you know getting more curved over time, well I would uh, you know recommend you go talk to uh, a surgeon. Um, who specialises in Sherman's disease and talk about your options and maybe bracing and maybe surgery might be worth considering. But, you know, sur- spinal surgery always, or any surgery has risks and spinal surgery has you know, particular risks. Um, so, you know, I would only consider those options if, you know, if, if the curve is progressing. In terms of what can you do about uh, pain, well, um, you know, you mentioned a bunch of other sort of findings, what I would think of as incidental findings, um, you know, scoliosis, um, posterior lateral disc protrusion, um, thickening of the posterior longitudinal ligament. Um, yeah, so I, I think all of those things are very are commonly found on pain-free people um, and so may not be related to pain. Um, so what I would do is, uh, now you, you don't say exactly where his pain is, um, but you know, what you can do is, uh, you know, figure out where these findings are. So for instance, it says, you know, T5, 6 focal right posterior lateral disc protrusion. Um, so, you know, T5, 6 is the, T5 is the fifth thoracic vertebra, the fifth from the top. The, the top of your thorax is T1, then T2, etc. Um, and so T5-6 is the disc between the T5 and the T6 vertebrae. And it's focal right posterolateral. So that means it's small, it's focal. Right posterolateral means it's on the back slash right side. So it's neither back nor right, but it's kind of back slash right. So you can uh, find his T5 and T6. And the way you can do that is if you stand behind him and he bends his head forward till his chin's on his chest, there'll be a really pokey outy bump at the base of his neck, and that is his C7. Uh, And so if you pop your finger on his C7, you can then just slide your fingers down his spine. I'm assuming he's got no shirt on or a T-shirt. And you can then, you know, palpate and feel his T1, his T2, his T3, etc., until you get down to T5 and T6. And so in between the T5 and T6, about, I don't know, half an inch to the right of dead center, uh, of halfway between the T5 and the T6, that's where you'll find the T5, T6 right focal posterolateral disc protrusion. So if that's exact, you know, so you'd poke him in his back there, right, half a, cent, half a centimetre uh, or a centimetre to the right of his, you know, T5, T6, and say, is that where your pain is? 
And if he's like, yes, that's exactly where my pain is. Well, maybe that disc bulge has something to do with his pain. And if you poke him there and say, is that where your pain is? And he says, no, it's about an inch higher or two inches to the left or whatever, then it's unlikely that that disc bulge has anything to do with his pain. And so, so you can do that with each of these findings. So all you need to do is be a little bit methodical, figure out where the particular bony landmarks are that you're, you know, that are described in that um, uh, scan report, uh, palpate them, press on them repeatedly, you know, press, 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 press. Is that where your pain is? And then he'll say, no, it's a little bit higher, a little bit lower, a little bit. And so then you keep pressing on that same spot. And with your other hand, you try and find his pain. You know, what he feels is the kind of the the center of his pain. Uh, And so if you find that you're pressing on the spot where his pain is, and it's like a a few centimeters or a few inches or a foot away from where the finding is, well, it's, it's basically, you know, the findings probably got nothing to do with the pain in that case. So, you know, that you can use, you can kind of use that as a process of kind of uh, elimination to figure out if any of these findings are, you know, seem to be uh, related to your symptoms. Um, just as a matter of interest, uh, in terms of, you know, if you find that one of them is related to your symptoms, well, the thing is that doesn't really change the treatment. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just really just a matter of interest. Um, and I imagine that he would probably be interested in that. So, yeah, uh, what's the treatment? Well, the, you know, the treatment for light, for back pain, thoracic back pain, and for cervical radiculopathy as well is basically uh, all of the things that support human flourishing and well-being. Um, and because back pain... Um, is known to be or is currently thought of as a biopsychosocial uh, phenomenon. So in other words, it is uh, it arises, pain arises out of a complex interaction of biological processes, um, psychological uh, and social determinants as well. So biology might include inflammation, it might include disc bulge, uh, might include um, you know other types of injuries. Uh, psychological might include mental health, might include stress, it might include um, poor sleep, um, uh, and social might include things like uh, you know meaningful activities, um, supportive relationships, um, you know having a, a trusted practitioner or somebody that he uh, can. Uh, you know, feel supported by. So all of these things can you can address um, to a greater or lesser extent. Um, but but really, it's pretty you know it's pretty simple and straightforward. Um, my recommendation, which is general physical activity. Um, so any kind of physical activity that he enjoys and that gets him moving and out of breath and strengthens his muscles. Um, and not necessarily focusing on strengthening the bit that's sore. Um, although you know don't don't avoid it. But um, just general strengthening and general kind of cardio. And if he wants to do some stretching, that's probably not going to hurt as well. But it doesn't really matter what he does. You know, so whatever he enjoys doing and is easy for him and is accessible for him to do, um, that's what he should do. Um, and there's, there's no one form of exercise or stretching or 
cardio or anything that's going to be better or worse than any other. So just whatever he likes doing. Uh, and then address, you know, with him um, in a collaborative way, uh, other factors. And, uh, you know, you've done our diploma, so you've got the What's Causing Your Pain workbook. You can give him that. Um, and if, you know, for those of you listening, if you're interested, um, I will post a link to that in the show notes. And it basically is just a little questionnaire that I put together that just asks about, you know, many of the factors that determine, or not determine, but um, are known to be associated with with pain. Um, and they're just basic things like sleep, stress, job satisfaction, you know, time in nature, mental health, diet, you know, etc. Um, which all of the things which you know are, you know, basically healthful um, for human flourishing so that's basically what i recommend and if the if only if the curve's really progressing um that's when i would uh consider going to talk to a a surgeon or specialist in this uh, area all right i hope that helps uh all right bridget has a second question (laughs) okay bridget hey raf just finished my diploma which i loved prior to i was a qualified mat work instructor from another studio my eyes are now wide open as to how wrong I've been trained and how I want to change the way I deliver lessons. My issue is I have a pretty big following and I have a fear if I change my style, no one will like it and prefer the old. So I was taught to talk and cue all the time, especially target glutes, abs, lower traps, hamstrings, etc. Cue neutral and imprinted spine, the works. Help, we're now on Christmas break and I want to introduce the new style next year. How do I do this? I feel like a bit of a fraud. Cheers, Bridget. Well, Bridget, uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a challenge I've been through myself and uh, I would say to you, all right, well, you've got to, uh, you know, you said you've been trained wrong uh, and you feel like a fraud. I would probably disagree with, you know, m- most of both of those things. Um, think okay there might have been some things about your previous training that were out of date or not in line with science or whatever but they've obviously done a pretty good job in some respects because you've got a big following which means you're doing something or a lot of things really right so congratulations you've got a big following that's i mean that's that's why that's what we're here for right it's to to get people moving and um just by getting them moving you know with or without cueing glutes or abs or whatever they're going to get a lot of those, you know, benefits of exercise, improved mental health, improved strength, improved functional capacity, improved cardiovascular health, etc. So congratulations, you're doing a freaking awesome job. Uh, now, so how can we enable you to do an even better job and to um, you know, implement, start to implement some of the science-based um, strategies that you've learned in your diploma? Uh like using external cues and um, so on. Well, I would say uh, start easy and build slowly, right? Don't don't go cold turkey. You've got a crowd who, you've got a tribe, you know, you've built a tribe who love what you do. Um, and I would suggest that, you know, probably a lot of them love you more for who you are rather than for you know, what words you use when you cue them. Um, I think you'll probably find that many of your clients won't even notice a difference, Um, like as in won't comment. Um, 
uh, you know, they may, may find that they're progressing more quickly, um, but they probably, you know, won't be able to say what you're doing different. Um, so, uh, but it, it is actually difficult to change the way you teach. Like if you've been teaching a lot, then, you know, uh, probably what happens is you get in class and you think I'm going to teach such and such an exercise and you kind of press a button inside your head that says, you know, teach such and such an exercise and bam, out your mouth comes the spiel. That is your, you know, habitual kind of um, routine for teaching that exercise. Uh, and if you've got a whole bunch of internal cues and etc., as part of that, well, it's really hard to change that routine. So I'd say be easy on yourself. Uh, don't, don't, aim to, you know, go cold turkey and, you know, never use another muscle cue again uh, on the 1st of January, I would say, uh, you know, just aim to do a little bit less muscle cueing and aim to do a little bit more external cueing, um, you know, start to introduce some really simple cues to just plan out, okay, I'm going to change the way I teach, you know, one exercise or I'm going to, uh, you know, use one, I'm going to start using, you know, directional cues, you know, reaching to the windows or reaching to the door, reaching to the re- towards reception or whatever it might be, rather than, you know, muscle cues, certain muscle cues. So I would say, you know, just go easy. Uh, it actually took me probably two or three years of teaching full-time to really kind of rinse out the old <laughs> way that I learned of teaching um, using all of those muscle cues um, because I'd practiced it for a decade um when I so I you know when I when I learned about uh, external cueing so uh, I think you know be easy on yourself expect this to be a, a marathon not a sprint um and just you know start easy and, and build slowly but I, I wouldn't worry too much about your clients expectations I think uh, probably your expectations are much uh much harsher than your clients are and your your clients as long as you're attentive to them and you're not walking around the room cursing and muttering at yourself under the breath under your breath for getting it wrong um your clients will be very happy uh, i predict so yeah be easy on yourself start easy build slowly and uh, if you backslide a little bit every now and then don't worry about it just you know pick yourself up dust yourself off and uh, keep going and you know you're not you're not hurting people you've got a you've build a great following so you know the vast majority of what you're doing must be working really well so um you know don't 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 fret it you know you, now this is just an opportunity to further upgrade um you're not doing everything wrong you're doing awesome all right hope that helps bridget all right kate taylor says hi raf a client of mine is getting a kidney stent in for two weeks after blasting a kidney stone can you please advise me on what you suspect the healing time will be and what exercises to avoid? Obviously a lot of core, but it will, all, will it also affect leg exercises too? Thanks in advance and thanks for the opportunity to ask you questions. My pleasure, Kate. All right, so, a, so uh, basically when you get a stent uh, after a kidney stone, so basically your kidneys filter is essentially a filter that all of your blood passes through um, and they the kidneys filter your blood to keep in the things that you want to keep in your blood and to filter out the things you don't want in your blood like for instance if you have too much salt or not enough salt in your blood um, sodium in your blood you know your kidneys will filter out sodium or they'll retain sodium to you know maintain the correct level of sodium in your blood um, and 
you know, other metabolic waste products are filtered out. And your kidneys also maintain your uh, blood volume. So if you, you know, drink a lot of water, your kidneys will, you know, your blood becomes diluted. You know, you've got too much water and not enough proteins and sodium and glycogen and also glucose and whatever in your blood. It's just diluted. Um, and you can actually die of that in an extreme case. You know, if you if you drink extreme amounts of water, uh, it's called hyponatremia and people can die of it because the blood becomes too diluted. So your kidneys serve the function of basically maintaining the correct levels of you know, all the bits in your blood um, in the right concentrations and they filter out the waste products and keep in the good stuff. And the stuff that they filter out goes down from the kidney through a tube called a ureter and the ureter goes to your bladder um, and so you have a left and a right ureter, one from each kidney. And uh, when people have a kidney stone, uh, it's just like a, a crystal that forms of some of the, um, you know, products in the blood that is you know that are separated out in the kidney it kind of concentrates sometimes and they can form a crystal and so you get like a little crystal rock inside your kidney and the problem with that is the rock doesn't fit down the ureter and it kind of gets it goes into the mouth of the ureter down towards the bladder and then kind of gets stuck and the problem with that is it then prevents flow of urine from the kidney to the bladder uh, and so you don't say how uh, the, the kidney stone was removed, but it's common to use uh, shockwave therapy um, is one way I know they do it. So they basically just um, sit you in a bath and uh, blast you with ultrasonic sound waves and at a very particular frequency, and that uh, can break up the kidney stone. Um, but then even sometimes some of the pieces of the kidney stone can be too big to fit down through the narrowest part of the ureter. So what they sometimes do then is they put in a stent, which is basically just a hollow tube that goes all the way up your ureter. So generally they do it in under general anaesthetic. They insert it um, through your urethra, um, through your, you know where you urinate from, uh, into your bladder, and then they uh, stick in some contrast dye and take an X-ray and have a look at everything, and then they basically you know um, thread that tube up your ureter, and then um, sort of expand it so that uh, urine can pass through even in the presence of a um, part of a kidney stone that's kind of stuck in there and it basically just gives the kidney stone time to you know dissolve and and pass through so they usually leave it in for a, you know a couple of weeks up to six weeks sometimes and basically it's it's uh there are no real problems with having a stent in uh, no you know, generally no serious problems with having a stent in uh there's usually um you know, normal symptoms uh, will include blood in the urine, um, burning sensation with urination, some sometimes feelings of urgency um, for urinating, um, you know, urinating more frequently, um, spasms of the ureter or bladder because both are muscles. Um, uh, so, you know, all of those are, you know, and, you know, pain or discomfort um, in, you know, around that area. So in the kind of lower back and flank and lower abdomen area. Um, so all of those are normal symptoms. Um, and so that, you know, basically you've got a freaking wire inside your, <laughs> inside your ureter. So, you know, as you move the inner parts of the ureter and the top end 
rest of the ureter is in, inside the kidney. So the parts of the kidney and inside your bladder is the lower end of the of the uh, stent. So um, you know that it's it's a tube. It will rub and press on you know parts of your organs that are unaccustomed to having being rubbed and pressed. Um, and so you know it'll cause discomfort. It might you know abrade some of the internal um, epithelial lining of the ureter. Uh, you know, cause um, small amounts of blood into the urine. Um, so all of that's quite normal. Uh, and there are no exercise contraindications. So if you're doing a lot of kind of twisting and bending work, um, it may aggravate those symptoms. So you may get a slight increase in bleeding, increase in discomfort, increase in, you know, uh, urinary urgency, frequency, etc. But that's really just a matter of uh, the person's comfort and tolerance. So if they're prepared to put up with those discomforts and a bit of blood in the urine, those are not a problem. Um, some symptoms that are not normal with a stent, um, and that should, they should see the doctor if they occur, are constant dark blood um, that's, that does not ease up with increased fluid intake, uh, thick clots or tissue in the urine, um, urinary retention, like, you know, in other words, unable to urinate, um, uh, small um, dribbles of urine, um, severe pain that's not relieved with any medications, um, and or if they have a fever um, of over 101 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So, but you know those are pretty unlikely and unlikely to you know unlikely to be aggravated by exercise. So I would say go for gold with the exercise, but just based around comfort. Um, it's a it's a relatively uninvasive surgery because they don't actually cut you open to insert the stent. They just insert it through your urethra. So it's, you know, it's, it's basically just an irritant. Um, it's like a supersized IUD, basically, I think. So, um, yeah, I hope that helps. And my, re- my recommendation would be just, you know, exercise, um, do whatever moves you want uh, within comfort slash tolerance. All right, hope that helped, Kate. All right, Laura says, um, hi, Raf. I've got a bit of a technical question here. You guys use Vimeo for your course vids, etc. Is there a particular reason Vimeo kicks more butt than YouTube vids? Was just curious to know before I potentially go down the wrong path. Most appreciated. Thank you. Well, uh, Laura, um, yeah, there are a few reasons we use Vimeo. Um, and those are... Uh, basically that uh, you, well, in no particular order, but YouTube uh, has has a way, way larger volume of videos than Vimeo. So YouTube, I don't know the exact number, but something like um, every minute, you know, like 500 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube around the world. So it's just ridiculously huge amounts of video are uploaded to YouTube. And YouTube has to store all that on its servers and has to, you know, process and render all those files and compress them, etc. So it's prioritized speed over quality. So YouTube, um, you know, works, the, the servers work quickly to compress those videos. Uh, but you know, in in gaining speed, they sacrifice some quality, whereas Vimeo has prioritised quality over speed. And so their videos, like when I upload, a say, a 90-minute lecture, it takes like 20 minutes to render. Um, but if you upload a video, the same video to YouTube and Vimeo in the same um, definition, so, you know, 1080 by 720 is what we use, uh, 
you, the Vimeo one will look better. Um, and that's just because of the way the Vimeo algorithm works. So that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is uh, Vimeo has is much more customizable. So, um, for instance, you know, if we update a video, so if you know, if we replace a lecture or replace something because it's you know we've created a more recent version that's more up to date, well, basically you can replace it but keep the same URL. So that means we don't have to go change you know the link in our e-learning platform and in all our blogs and everything. We just kind of basically replace the actual video but keep the URL. So that's pretty awesome i don't think you can do that on facebook um vimeo's got a lot more kind of privacy options as well so you can list in, in youtube you can list you know upload it as unlisted or um or public or i think uh private as well whereas vimeo you've got a bunch of different additional settings so you can say you can you can make each individual video password protected for example or you can share it with only people in specific domains you can say it can only be embedded in certain domains or you know so you have a lot more flexibility around um you know who can and can't see your videos uh and then also in vimeo you've got some really nifty little branding uh customization available to you in the vimeo player so um you know you can choose whether it displays the vimeo logo or not you can put your custom logo on it you can choose customize the colors of the play buttons you can choose where it has the share link the embed link the player controls all of that kind of stuff um and that's just it's more flexible than um facebook so those are the basic reasons why we use vimeo hope you find that helpful um, now we actually we also use YouTube, so I do upload stuff to YouTube. But all of the hosted videos that we do, so everything that's housed inside our e-learning or on our blog or anything like that, um, is all done in Vimeo. So yeah, all right. Well, that is all we have for today. Thanks all of you who uh, posted questions. Um, and if you're out there in the Pilates multiverse. Um, or even just the regular multiverse, the exercise science multiverse, the fitness training multiverse, or the yoga multiverse, or any other kind of multiverse, and you've got a question and you're curious and it's related to something that I have vague knowledge about, like uh, exercise science, anatomy, biomechanics, physiology, pain science, uh, or aspects of running, running a Pilates training business, um, send it in. You don't have to be one of our students. You don't have to be one of our graduates. You don't have to be anyone I know. You can just be a random person from a random place, a free-ranging member of the universe, and I will do my best to answer your question. And uh, the great thing about this format is uh, I don't have to answer them extemporaneously. I can just go look up some research. So if you ask me a question, for instance, about the natural history of Sherman's disease, uh, I had to go look that up. So I'll just look up a bunch of research and find out what's currently known about a topic and um, then I'll share that with you. So I hope you find that helpful. I hope you're well. I hope your family's well. I hope you're enjoying yourself, whatever you do. And uh, I look forward to our next little chat.